Christ the Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. This ancient Christian call and response is a sort of shorthand for the entire gospel message, the centerpiece of which is, of course, Christ's resurrection from the dead, which is, of course, what we get to celebrate today. Welcome to Easter at Glendale Christian Church. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm the lead minister here at GCC, and I am so grateful that you've decided to come worship with us. I pray that you will be blessed by God's word and God's truth today. For God's word and God's truth is good news, truly. It is good news. There is good news that the infinite triune master of heaven and earth saw fit to make humankind in his own image endowing us with rationality and the capacity to love God or to rebel against God. In this freedom, all merely human beings have fallen short, however, of God's exacting standard and sinned. And God, in his holy, perfect nature, cannot abide sin. For sin, rebellion against the infinite God, deserves an infinite punishment. And the only form of punishment or penalty that we as finite human beings can mete out in order to pay God for the penalty incurred is our death, our blood shed, and our separation from God. But God, in his perfect loving nature, cannot abide being separated from the creatures made in his own image. And so God enacted the plan that he devised from eternity past, whereby God the Father sent God the Son, we call him Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life as a human being here on earth, which is only possible because God made humankind in his own image, so when God steps out of heaven, he can become a human if he so desires. And Jesus, as a human and as God, showed us the perfect way. He showed us how to live. He taught the highest ethical standards ever taught to human beings, and he perfectly fulfilled God's exacting standard. And then he did ultimately what he came to do. He took our place. Knowing that the only way we could be right with the infinite God was for our ultimate punishment to be paid, and knowing that that would separate us forever from him, Jesus took our place. On the cross, Jesus died for our sins. And in so doing, God the Father made him who had no sin, Jesus Christ, to become sin for us so that we who are filled with sin might be clothed with his righteousness. And there was a great cosmic swap that took place at the cross. But the cross was not the end of the story. No, no, no. For three days later, after he'd been laid in the tomb, God the Father and God the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating and validating the sacrifice that he'd made on the cross on our behalf, proving that it worked to bring about our salvation. And now all who place their faith in God's amazing grace are saved by that grace, are changed by that grace, are filled with God the Spirit, dwelt with Him and enabled to live the life God calls us to live, to do the works that God Almighty prepared in advance for us to do. 
The good news is that this crucified and resurrected Jesus now reigns as king of the universe. And we proclaim him to the lost and dying world. This is our gospel. This is what we preach. And this is what the Apostle Paul would have all his hearers have in mind as he delivered a letter to the church in Corinth. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there now or you can follow along on the screens behind me as the word of God is declared. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul will make reference back to this gospel that has just been declared. And he will show the importance of the centerpiece of that gospel, Christ's resurrection. Let us jump into the first two verses of our text this morning. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. The gospel was something that the Corinthians had received and something upon which they had taken a stand. The gospel was saving the Corinthians as they continued to hold to it. And in the same fashion, we, as dealing with the gospel, must first of all receive it. We must stand upon it, we must be saved by it, and we must hold to it tenaciously. No one ever invented the gospel. It's something which he receives. This is the very function, in fact, of the church. The church is the storehouse and transmitter of the good news. And the very first function of the good news is to give us stability and traction. In a slippery world, it keeps our feet firmly planted. In a tempting world, it gives us resisting power. In a hurting world, the gospel enables us to endure a broken heart or a broken body and not to give in. The gospel keeps believers on their feet. And the gospel is something by which we are saved. The gospel is good news about God's powerful grace. Other scriptures besides this one declare that the gospel is the power of salvation. In fact, Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says, you were also included with Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The gospel saves. And the gospel is something we must hold to tenaciously. Life will make every effort to take away our faith. Things happen to us in this world which baffle our understanding. Life has its problems to which there seem no solution, and life has questions to which there seems no answer. Life has dark places where there seems nothing to do but to hold on. But our faith in the gospel is always a victory. Victory of the soul, which tenaciously maintains its clutch on God. If we do not continue to hold fast, we might let go of the gospel. Do not let this world loosen your grip on the gospel and so have only held it in vain. The gospel must be believed. In fact, the faith that embraces the gospel is the one that stands, but the faith which collapses is the faith which has not thought through 
or thought about the implications of the gospel. For many people in this world, faith is just a superficial thing. We tend to accept things because we're told them, and thus we possess that thing merely secondhand in nature. But if we really and truly investigate something and we embrace that thing, it becomes ours in such a way that nothing can ever take it from us. This is what we must do with the gospel, which is why the Apostle Paul will say in verses 3 through 8 these words, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Paul says, what I received, I passed on to you. Notice, the preacher does not make the gospel. We are not inventors, we are repeaters. And we tell the message that we have received. In fact, Paul, in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it by any man. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ himself. Notice also that the gospel is not insightful teaching. It's not good advice. The gospel is far more than that. Preaching that is merely feel-good fluff is actually rotten fruit. At the core of the gospel is something that actually happened in history. Real, tangible, historical events are at the very core of the gospel. The gospel isn't a matter of religious opinions, platitudes, or fairy tales. It's about real, historical, tangible, bodily, verifiable events and the spiritual realities that those events impact. Paul said, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Make no mistake, it was our sins that put Jesus on the cross. He did not die merely for a political cause or as an enemy of the state or because of someone's envy or jealousy. Jesus did not die as a mere martyr for his cause. Jesus died for our sins. And the death he died was gruesome and terrible. However, I never want to speak of the physical sufferings of Jesus so that you would feel sorry for him or place your pity on Jesus. No. Save your pity for those who reject the complete work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary and save your pity for those preachers who do not have the heart to proclaim that sinful mankind deserving death requires a perfect sacrifice and that only Jesus can be that perfect sacrifice. Pity them. But as for us, we will preach Christ and Christ crucified. Now, the scriptures are replete with the notion that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The New Testament centers around this event, but in this passage, Paul is referring back to the Old Testament. He's saying it's the Old Testament that points to the crucifixion of Jesus, and in fact, Paul has in mind two particular chapters that highlight the Old Testament prophecies about the crucifixion of the Messiah. First comes from chapter 22 of the book of Psalms. 
where the Messiah is prophesied to be able to say, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. And then, of course, Isaiah 53 powerfully proclaims that the Messiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Oh yes, the Old Testament indicates that Christ would die, in fact, for our sins. And the gospel is not merely the cross. Notice that the gospel is not merely the cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3 through 5, that Jesus died on the cross according to the sin, according to the scriptures, and was buried. The fact that Jesus was buried is very, very important because he was laid in a tomb borrowed by Joseph of Arimathea. And this tomb forms a centerpiece of the historical evidence by which we can verify the historicity of the resurrection. He had to be buried in order to have an empty tomb. And in fact, he was buried in this tomb. But it also says that the scriptures indicate he would be raised on the third day from the dead. And in fact, this is what Psalm 1610 declares to us. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see decay, the Messiah is able to say. And then the same chapter that talks about Christ's crucifixion also talks about his resurrection. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, After he has suffered, he will again see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Not only that, but Scripture even indicates that it will be on the third day that this will happen. Hosea 6.2 says, after two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will restore us. Not only that, but Jonah 1.17 says, says, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then the Lord himself, in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 40, says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. This also demonstrates Christ's credibility, for he proclaimed that he would rise three days after his death. And then, the Bible tells us that Jesus appeared to Cephas, Peter, and this is recorded in Luke chapter 24, verse 34, where Jesus continues his restoration. Then Jesus appears to the 12, which is the name given to the apostles, and even though they're down a member at this point because Judas is out, it certainly refers to the time that Jesus met with them according to Mark 16, 14, or Luke 24, or John chapter 20, verses 19 through 25. And this is the meeting where Jesus appeared in the room with locked doors, and he entered using his transfigured body and breathed the Holy Spirit on them. Verse 6 explains to us that Paul says, also, he appeared after that to more than 500 of the believers, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, a euphemism for death. 
Between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus showed himself very much alive again to more than 500 people simultaneously. And at the time this was written, lots of them were still alive, and the readers could go interview them and investigate the matter for themselves. But Jesus didn't just show up to those who followed him. The Bible tells us that Jesus also appeared to those who were his enemies. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is mentioned. Now, we know that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was seen as a prominent leader in the church by the time Acts 15 rolls around, but according to John 7, before the resurrection, Jesus' brothers were very opposed to his ministry and to his mission. They wanted nothing to do with him. They thought he was nuts and they disowned him, but it was after the resurrection that James started singing a different tune, and this is the same James who wrote the book of James. Encountering the risen Lord Jesus changes everything. You've encountered the risen Lord Jesus, haven't you? Have you been changed? And has everything in your life changed? Paul explains, it wasn't just the enemy James to whom Jesus showed himself. He also showed himself to me as to one abnormally born. Paul encountered the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus where he was getting ready to arrest and prosecute and persecute more Christians for their belief in Jesus. But Jesus knocked him down and blinded him and groping around on the ground is when Paul finally came to his senses and was able to see. And that's when the apostle Paul was taken and assigned a task. Now, Paul describes himself as one abnormally born because although he's the 13th apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, he didn't follow Jesus pre-crucifixion. Uh, pre In fact, he stood opposed to Jesus. He stood with the Sanhedrin in condemnation of Jesus, and he said, crucify him, crucify him. He wanted Jesus dead. And then even after the resurrection, Paul says, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. For I am the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called one because I persecuted the church of God. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the power of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. The grace of God appeared to Saul. Saul of Tarsus, who stood opposed to God, persecuted the church. He didn't deserve to be called an apostle. Nothing good he ever did warrants his good standing with God. In fact, he was legally responsible for the first Christian martyr's death. The deacon Stephen was stoned to death, and everyone who threw the rocks laid their cloaks down at Saul's feet, for he received legal authority and responsibility for the death of Stephen. He was a persecutor of the church. Recall how Paul tried to stamp out Christianity, first by standing against Jesus, then killing his servant Stephen, then hunting down and tracking all the Christians seeking to destroy the church by arresting them, kicking doors in, going synagogue to synagogue, house to house, chucking Christians in jail for the belief in the way and in the name of Jesus. But by God's grace, Paul was changed. Paul was changed. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, he stops going by Saul, having been changed by the grace of God sometime earlier. He now starts being referred to as Paul, 
And Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, one of the great Christians who ever lived by grace, was able to work so, so hard. It is grace that saves us and grace that changes us. But grace is never given to us because of what we have done. It is always given us to prompt us to the work that God would call us to. Grace changed Paul. No one receives the grace of God and then goes unchanged by it. The changes don't all come at once, though, and we cannot exhaust the changes while we are stuck in this sinful body of ours, but how we receive God's grace will determine, in effect, how powerfully effective it works in our lives. Grace is not given because of any work we have done, are doing, or even will do. Grace is given to encourage the work that God prepared in advance for us to do. If grace was dependent on our good work, none of us would receive it. But grace, by definition, is the free gift of God that is not dependent on our good deeds. It is in spite of our good deeds, and it helps us to live the good deeds that God wants us to live. By his grace, we become active. You can't receive God's grace, be saved, and then become passive. If you just say that you're saved by God's grace and then just sit around... You're not receiving his grace in an appropriate way whatsoever because his grace must mightily work in you. You must work hard after the grace has been given. Though it's not just you, it's the grace of God working in you. But if you do not open yourself up as a vessel to do the good works God prepared in advance for you to do and you seek passively merely to receive God's grace, you will never experience the abundant life that God has for you. We work hard because the grace of the Lord Jesus works in us. It's not our good works that get us God's saving grace. It's God's saving grace that enable us to do good works. And all of this is because of the resurrection. In fact, because of the resurrection, everything is possible. In fact, verses 12 through 19 tell us of 1 Corinthians 15, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In fact, if Christ has not been raised, our entire faith is futile because we are still in our sins. Paul insisted that the resurrection of Jesus was a fact. And if it was not a fact, then all of Christianity is built on a lie. If you take away the resurrection, you destroy both the foundation and the fabric of the very Christian faith. And so, here's a logical argument that I've seen presented by logicians to describe the gospel. When I was teaching at the University of Arkansas in the philosophy department, and I was teaching logic, we sometimes would talk about God stuff. And here's an argument that follows Paul's logic. It's a series of conditional arguments whereby the very first hypothetical will lead to the very last condition. Follow along. If Jesus is not risen, then death has power over Jesus. 
If death has power over Jesus, then Jesus is not God. If Jesus is not God, then he cannot pay for our sins. If Jesus cannot pay for our sins, then Christians are still in our sins. If Christians are still in our sins, then we are not saved. Therefore, if Jesus is not raised, then we are not saved. Everything depends on the resurrection. Here, in easy-to-follow, logical format, we see Paul's line of thought. Everything depends on the resurrection. If it's not actual and real, we are wasting our time. In fact, the Bible tells us all kinds of things rest on the resurrection of Jesus. The divinity of Christ himself rests on the resurrection of Jesus, according to Romans chapter 1-4. The sovereignty of Jesus rests on the resurrection of Jesus, according to Romans 14-9. Our own justification rests on the resurrection of Jesus, according to Romans 4-25. Our regeneration rests on the resurrection of Jesus, according to 1 Peter 1-3. Our own future resurrection rests on Christ's resurrection, according to Romans 8, 11. Yes, what rests on the resurrection of Jesus? All of Christianity, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Everything, everything depends on the resurrection. And this is why Paul took such efforts to lay out the evidence for Christ's resurrection, saying Jesus died, he was buried, the tomb was empty, Jesus physically appeared to lots of people, both followers and enemies. And that is why Paul can confidently and boldly declare in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word first fruits is really, really important here. Jesus is the first fruits, meaning that he's the first to be raised from the dead, but he's not the last. Jesus is the first to be resurrected, but he's not the last. So far, he's the only. Don't confuse what resurrection is. Resurrection is not merely coming back from the dead. Resurrection is being raised from the dead, never to die again. So when Jesus raised Lazarus, that wasn't resurrection. When Jesus raised the little girl, that wasn't resurrection. When Peter raised Tabitha, that wasn't resurrection. Because all those people, the little girl, Tabitha, and Lazarus, they all died again. How weird must that have been? But they all died a second time. Not Jesus. Resurrection means being raised from the dead, never to die again. And Jesus is the first fruits because he's the very first one. But all of us will be raised from the dead also. All of us will be raised from the dead to inhabit indestructible, uncorruptible, resurrection bodies like his. And in fact, that's what the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about. The word first fruits here is not just a clever turn of phrase that Paul comes up with. It in fact points back to the Old Testament feast of first fruits. Do you remember your Old Testament stories about the feast of first fruits? Well, according to Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14, the Feast of Firstfruits was observed on the first day after the Sabbath following the Passover. Significantly, Jesus rose from the dead on the exact day of the Feast of Firstfruits, the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. This is very interesting to me, but it gets even better. According to Leviticus chapter 2, the offering rendered at the Feast of Firstfruits was a bloodless grain offering. No atonement was necessary because just previously the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. This corresponds perfectly with the resurrection of Jesus. Because of his death, he ended the need for sacrifice, having provided perfect and complete atonement for our sins. 
God is so good. He works together not just the truth. He works together his Old Testament word prophesying exactly what would happen so that those familiar with those festivals would be more in love with the power of God and what he has done. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of fact. The facts surrounding the resurrection are precisely why I became a Christian. The only reason that I became a Christian was because of the evidence to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I remember the year was 1999. The month was February. It was early in that month. Easter was early and the church was in the pre-Easter run. And I found myself at church for the first time. I followed a little blonde girl because I wanted to better my chances at dating her. And so that's why I went to church. I had no good reason to go to church whatsoever. My intention was nefarious. In fact, at that point, I was a real cuss of a jerk atheist. Oh, I was bad. As captain of the debate team at Rockbridge High School, I fancied myself the smartest guy in school. I was certainly smarter than all the teachers, I thought, and I knew that I was smarter than probably everybody alive at the time. A lot of teenagers suffer from this predilection, and I was certainly one of them. But I was smarter than all the Christians I knew. For every time a little Christian would invite me to church, and oh, there were lots of them. They invited me all the time. There was one really prominent youth group that went to Rockbridge High School. They all came, to Form Bulle- came from Form Boulevard Christian Church, and they would invite me to church. And every single time they would invite me to church, I would come up with new and creative ways to deny them and tell them no, and then I would start to crush and destroy their little faith. I would ask them a question, or I'd make a statement. I would say, you realize that only stupid people believe that dead people can come back from the dead. Miracles are fake, right? You know that, that David Hume in the 17th century Enlightenment validated and proved that miracles are only believed by barbaric idiots. Are you an idiot or a barbarian? And, and when you say mean, horrible things like that, not all high school kids know how to respond to somebody. And so I was really mean. And I said, oh, you can't believe in the Bible. It's full of contradictions. It's full of inconsistencies. And believe it or not, most high school kids didn't know how to answer me. And so I remember when Fauna invited me to church one time, and I was so mean to her that she left crying. I remember when John invited me to church one time, and I was so rotten to him, he cussed me out. And I said, see, Christians are a bunch of uh, nothings. I knew all Christians had to be stupid. And so I went to church not because I thought it was real, but because I wanted to date some little blonde girl. And during the sermon, the preacher was preaching about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the reality of the resurrection. And at the end of the sermon, he said, now if anyone wants to become a Christian, why don't you stand up and come on down? Or if anyone just wants to tell me why it's fake, why don't you stand up and come on down? And so I popped right up and I started walking down the aisle. And I looked back and this little girl thought that I was going down to become a Christian. And I thought, this is going to be too easy. And before I could even get to the front row, a huge hand, pulled my arm aside, and this man, six feet four inches tall, just the same height as me, but way stronger, said, Andrew, I've been waiting for you. I was like, how do you know my name? And he said, oh, I know all about you. You're the one who's been plucking kids for my youth group. My name's Joe Weiss. I'm the youth minister here at Forum Boulevard, and it's time you pick on someone your own size. And I thought he was going to deck me. I thought he was going to punch me right in the nose. I thought I was going to start bleeding all over the the church carpet. Like, I was afraid. He was intimidating. Big college basketball player kind of a guy. I mean, I was scared. And he said, you're going to turn right around, and you're going to go tell that girl that you're busy the rest of the day, and we're going to have a sit down. And I thought, oh, no, he's going to wait till we're alone, and then he's going to hit me. 
I was petrified. He didn't hit me. You know what he did instead? He took me to Gino's Steakhouse. He bought me the chopstick special. And for three hours, he said, why don't you just lay it out on me? You keep picking on my little kids. Why don't you pick on me? Why don't you tell me why you think it's fake? Why don't you tell me what you've got against the church? And so I did. I did. I told him everything. I said, you can't believe dead people come back from the dead. Haven't you studied Hume and the argument against miracles from the... Oh, come on, man. You don't believe in the Bible? That's a bunch of ridiculous nonsense. You're telling me that God exists even when you see all the nonsense in this world? No way. Joe, you're out of your mind. I, I said, you think in one day you can invite me and I'll become a Christian? And then he quoted the verse I quoted last week from Acts chapter 26. He said, short time or long, I pray that not only you but all who hear me would become what I am, saved by the grace of God and a Christian man. I said, you really think you can do it? He said, yeah, why don't you show up tomorrow? And so Rockbridge High School had open lunch. We could leave the school and go to wherever we wanted for lunch. And so for three weeks in a row, I met Joe every single day for lunch. And for three weeks in a row, Joe went through every single one of the objections and arguments that I raised in order. He was the only Christian man I'd ever met who was smarter than me. And it was the first time that I met an intelligent Christian who was also compassionate and kind. And he showed me love and he listened to me. He took the time to actually disciple me I couldn't believe it. And he was answering my objections, and then we got to the resurrection of Jesus, and he said, you don't believe that Jesus came back from the dead. And I said, how can you? Believing people come back from the dead is ridiculous. And he said, no, 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 Andrew. There are three reasons why you should believe that people come back from the dead, that Jesus came back from the dead. The first is scripture. Oh, and scripture has all kinds of evidence about Jesus' resurrection. Jesus predicted his own resurrection. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's the heart of every single New Testament sermon. Each gospel records it. The book of Acts details how it was proclaimed and transformed people, and all the epistles mention it through and through. It's the main event in the New Testament, and it's claimed to be an actual historical event. Witnesses are mentioned, evidence is given, and the Bible's the Word of God. We believe in the resurrection because it's in the Scriptures. But some people don't believe in the Word of God, and I said, I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, so this isn't convincing to me at all. I don't, I don't care that it's in the Bible. I'm telling you, I think the Bible is fake, Joe. The resurrection is fake, Joe. And he said... Okay, rather than get into some long, drawn-out discussion about the nature of the Bible and the reliability thereof, we'll get to that one later, just know this. The resurrection's in the Bible, and if you accept the Bible as the Word of God, then you have ample reason to accept the resurrection of Jesus as a verified historical event. And I said, granted, but I don't believe the Bible. Next, he said, transformed lives. He said, you don't know me you don't know how I grew up as a rebel and I did bad things and rebelled against my parents. You only see the minister before you now. And I said, Joe, that's exactly right. I didn't see the transformation. All I see is a really nice guy. You're telling me that you used to be a rebel? I don't buy it. You seem like straight bread and you've probably been this way your whole life. And he said, no, no, I've been transformed. I said, well, Joe, I didn't experience your transformation. So he told me about Paul's transformation. And I thought, that's great, but I didn't really experience that either. And you know what I realized? That even if you've been transformed by the risen Lord Jesus, it's hard to transfer your first-person experiential knowledge to someone else's third-person observational knowledge. So I said, next, I don't, buy, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. But if you have been transformed by the risen Lord Jesus, that's all you need to know that is a, it is a hard fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And he said, fine, we're going to talk about history 
And what Joe told me next is the reason I became a Christian, and it's what I want to share with you right now. He said, Andrew, have you ever heard of scientific historiography? And I said, no, Joe, I haven't heard about that. He said, you might not be as smart as you think you are. Scientific historiography is the preferred method that historians use to verify some event that happened in the past. He said, Andrew, you believe that Caesar crossed the Rubicon in 30 BC? I said, oh yeah, I believe that. He said, where was Napoleon defeated? I said, Joe, you can't stump me. He was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo. Everybody knows that. Like I said, I'm really smart. And he said, okay, very good. You believe he was defeated at Waterloo? I said, sure. Fact of history. He said, hey, who was the first president of these here United States? I said, well, it was George Washington. He said, if you believe that George Washington was the first president, Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo, that Caesar crossed the Rubicon in 30 BC, for the same reason you believe those, you ought to believe the resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> and I said, yeah, right. He said, here we go, scientific historiography. First thing you do is gather all the facts. So we got the Bible and we got the Shroud of Turin and we got all the eyewitness testimony, but then you get rid of all the evidence that any skeptic disagrees with. And so he said, I'll prove to you Jesus came back from the dead without using the Bible. I don't need the Shroud of Turin, I don't need any of this. All I need is the facts that ancient historians like Suetonius and Tacitus and Josephus and then even modern day historians believe in. And there's a whole good list of them, but for today we're only gonna talk about four of them. And he said, then we'll use the tools of necessary and sufficient conditions to determine the inference of the most likely hypothesis. And I was liking how this was going because it tracked with my logical mind. He said, you know what a sufficient or a necessary condition is, right? It's something that has to be the case for the outcome to obtain. So in order for the TV to be on, electricity has to be flowing to the TV. But electricity flowing to the TV isn't sufficient to make the TV go on because all the internal components have to also be working. I said, okay. He said, you know what a sufficient condition is? It's something that's enough to get the job done. And as a parent, you all know that it might be sufficient to wake you up to splash a bunch of cold water on your face. Or it might be sufficient to wake you up by clapping really loud in front of you. Or if you're a parent such as myself, if you hear the slightest floorboard of the room above you moving and you know that your little son with Down syndrome has rolled off the bed and he's making his way to the door, it'll wake you out of a dead sleep and you will sprint to those stairs to stop that little boy. Oh, yeah. All of those things are, are sufficient to wake but none of them are necessary because if there's lots of things that are sufficient, no one of them is necessary because any one of them could have gotten the job done. So the inference of the most likely hypothesis has to be sufficient to address address all the evidence, and in fact, it has to be the only thing that can address all the evidence. I said, Joe, you're setting up a pretty high bar. I don't think you can meet it. He said, here are the four pieces of evidence that all the historians agree in. Jesus died by crucifixion, was buried, his tomb was found empty, and many people had appearances that they, or experiences they believe to be literal appearances of Jesus, both followers and enemies. Sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, if you ask me. And yet, we're not using the Bible about that. So Jesus died by crucifixion. I said, all right, you, you, like, historians believe this, and we took some time to read modern and ancient historians. Yep, all these facts check out. Everybody, atheists included, believe all four of these facts. And so, he said, scientific historiography says, come up with a theory that tries to explain these facts. And I don't think you can come up with one that explains all of them, but I've got one, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. I said, well, Jesus probably never really died. He probably just looked dead. And he said, you've got to stop doing history to believe that. They stabbed him to death. You think the Romans didn't know how to crucify someone? Oh, he was dead, and there's not a single historian who's alive that's reputable who endorses this position. And I said, all right, fine. Well, next, next. I said, maybe they all just hallucinated. Maybe they just hallucinated. Now, any of you who remember any of your old hippie friends, ask them, do you hallucinate the same thing as everybody else? And the answer is no, you hallucinate what's in your own mind. So how could more than 500 people at once have a hallucination about the exact same thing? It just didn't add up. Also, it doesn't address the empty tomb at all. 
I said, well, then somebody probably just stole the body. He said, that's the only one that's actually old. You see, the Jews came up with that same theory, and they said, you better stop this Christian thing, and you better tell everybody that, the, uh, that even though you're professionally trained Roman soldiers, that somebody stole the body. Psh, yeah, right, they were going to do that. If they admitted that somebody stole the body out of them, they would have gotten the same punishment as the guy who was in the tomb, and they weren't about to do that. So that theory died really quickly. Also, uh, it doesn't account for the appearances of the risen Lord Jesus. I said, it's got to be a conspiracy or a legend. He said, there's not enough time for a legend to develop, and conspiracy can only happen if you have a plan. But nobody in the first century Jewish world believed that the resurrection was going to happen to one person before the end of time. And so everything you're coming up with just doesn't match the facts. It doesn't hit the appearances. And then I finally ended on, well, maybe it's just a spiritual resurrection. Maybe just Christians believe it in their heart and it wasn't real. And he said, man, if you're going to do that, you don't believe in the appearances of Jesus, although ancient historians do. And you've just given up on doing historical inquiry at all. And now you're just making stuff up, Andrew. Don't you want to be consistent? And that was a gut punch. Because an intellectual person who's inconsistent is not worth listening to. And he said, so you believe all these other things about history? You ought to believe the resurrection based on the same reasons. Oh, and by the way, I didn't have time today, but this is not all of the facts. There are 13 historically verifiable facts, and there are many other theories, and I detail all of them in this 12-page packet, and after church today, if you want to come up and grab one or go to the hub, and you want to see a summarized case for the historical, uh, the historical case of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, I invite you to take my packet. In it, I summarize all the evidence into 12 pages, and I think you will be blessed to read the reason I became a Christian. Only the resurrection fixed the facts, he said. And I said, Joe, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think you're right. And he said, well, Andrew, what are you going to do with that? And I said, nothing, Joe. It's what you're going to do with that. I guess it's time to baptize me tonight. And in late February of 1999, I became a Christian man because of the evidence for resurrection. And I hope that you will believe the evidence. <laughs> Only the resurrection can change a person's life. And if you believe it, you, gotta live the same, you can't live the same old way. Everything must change. If you believe in the resurrection, you need to live differently from the way you lived previously. Because the resurrection is proof that God's stuff is real. In fact, the resurrection is proof that lots of stuff is real. The resurrection proves that truth is stronger than falsehood. People today are in love with sin and they seek to deny the resurrection, but no one can present a rational case that explains the historical evidence that everyone agrees on better than the resurrection. The resurrection is the final guarantee of the indestructibility of truth. This world loves lies, so in this world, proclaim the truth of Christ alone and of his resurrection. The resurrection proves that good is stronger than evil. If the resurrection had not taken place, the very principle would have been implied and imperiled that evil would never be overcome by good. But the resurrection is the final guarantee that good triumphs over evil. So in this world that endorses evil, cling to good in Christ alone and his resurrection. Resurrection proves that life is stronger than death. If Jesus had died never to raise again, we would, it would have proved that death could take even the loveliest and best life that ever lived and break it. But the resurrection is the final proof that life is stronger than death. And in this world that worships death, worship Christ alone and his resurrection. The resurrection proves that love is stronger than hatred. 
Jesus is the love of God incarnate, and a love stronger than the grave was on display that resurrection morning. And in this world of hate, show your love to others. Share Christ alone and his resurrection. The resurrection proves that Jesus' sacrifice worked to bring about our salvation. It changes everything. So embrace Christ alone and the power of his resurrection and be saved. And once you are saved, share Christ alone and the power of his resurrection with everybody else. Will you live in the power of resurrection and glory in Christ alone and in his resurrection? If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you pledge your allegiance to Christ alone, then stand with me now. Stand with me firm in the faith. Stand with me on the gospel. Stand with me firm on Christ alone and the power of his resurrection. And stand with me now as we pray.